You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We are back to the book of Hebrews, and we are in the middle of these exhortations that we find in verses 22 through 25. The three of them, they all begin with, let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And these three exhortations all come as a sort of a summary of the doctrinal section which has come before this. And the doctrinal section ends with chapter 10, verse 18. I shouldn't say it ends, but the doctrinal emphasis kind of is drawn to a close there at the end of verse 18. And though the rest of the book is doctrinal, it is also very heavily practical. And so this, these three exhortations that sort of follow on the heels of that very deep theology regarding the sacrifice of Christ and His priesthood and all that that means, it introduces us to this later section of the book of Hebrews, which is more practical. It's filled with applications and exhortations and commands and things that we are to do in light of these great truths. And we always need to be careful when we say that one portion is doctrinal and one portion is practical, because that can tend to make us think that that which is doctrinal is not practical and that which is practical is not doctrinal, but that's not true. So we always need to be careful. There's a theological emphasis in the beginning of the book where he lays out these theological principles, but now for the rest of the book, he's beginning to apply these in some very specific ways for the rest of this book. And of course, these three exhortations come right before a warning passage that begins in verse 26. And I just want to draw your attention to this because as we've mentioned, as I've mentioned previously, the warning passage comes after these exhortations because these exhortations are to keep us from falling into the trap that the warning passage warns us about, namely apostasy, walking away or falling away or shrinking back to destruction. And so when we draw near to God and we hold fast to Him, our confession, and when we uh, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, these are all very practical ways to avoid going on and sinning after willfully, willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And these three exhortations have, as we've noted before, both an individual as well as a corporate dimension. You remember that? The drawing near to God is something that we do personally and individually as we approach God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also something that we do corporately as we gather together here as God's people and we draw near to God in, in, as a group, as a body of believers together. The holding fast is something that we do both individually as well as corporately. There is a holding fast to a common confession, something that all of us hold to. So this is obviously a corporate activity as well as an individual activity. And this idea of doing these things corporately sort of hangs over the whole passage. You can see from verse 25 that he specifically addresses not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together as is the habit of some. And so this idea of an assembly and doing these things as we are gathered together, it, it casts its shadow over all of these exhortations. The first two are really things that we do individually, specifically, primarily individually. We draw near personally as well as holding fast. But there are also things that have a corporate application, a corporate way that we obey those commands. But this third one, to consider how it is that we are to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, obviously the author has in mind here the corporate gathering of believers in which all of these exhortations are obeyed in some measure or another. 
So this idea of an assembly and gathering together as people assemble, as we gather together, we're doing these things, drawing near, holding fast, and encouraging one another. These are all things that find their ultimate expression of obedience in the public, physical gathering together of God's people, known as the church. Namely, what you are doing here this morning, as well as other gatherings together with God's people. So here's the exhort, here's the outline for verses 24 and 25. As we've looked at each of these three exhortations, draw near, hold fast, the outline was basically we have an exhortation and then we have an explanation of the exhortation. And we saw that with the first two exhortations. Let us draw near and there's an explanation of it. We are to do so with hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and a sincere faith. We are to hold fast to common confession. How is it that we are to do this? Without wavering, steadfast, not bending one way or another. And then how is it that we are to consider ways in which we are to encourage one another in love and in good deeds? That's the exhortation. Let us consider how we are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's the exhortation. How is it that we do that? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's the exhortation, and then the explanation of that exhortation. And then as with the second exhortation, there's a bit of a motivation there at the end. We're to do this all the more as we see the day drawing near. There is a day drawing near us. And if it was near back then, it is nearer still today. There is a day drawing near that should motivate us to obey the injunctions that are here in this passage. Verses 24 and 25. Look again at verse 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now that's the exhortation. That word consider is the word kata noeo, And you might recognize the Greek word noeo there, which has to do with the thinking and the mind, the consideration, what goes on in the mind. Uh, Nuos is the word for mind in the Greek. Uh, Metanoia, it has also that root word in it, which means it's translated as repentance and has to do with the changing of a mind, a change in the way that you think, which obviously would also affect one's behavior. That idea of repenting or turning, it affects the way that you think. Metanoia describes that. It's the changing of a mind. So this word describes considering something or contemplating something. It means to think carefully, to give deliberate, intentional, specific, focused concentration to something. It means to set your mind on something, to take notice of it, to observe it, to perceive it, to give careful and deliberate consideration to it. In the NASB, this word, variously used in in other places in the New Testament, it is translated as notice, observe, look, detect, contemplate, and of course here, consider. So to obey this command, to consider how it is that we are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, this obviously requires a diligent effort. It requires an intentional application of our mind that directs itself to the good and the welfare of our fellow believers. This is not describing the accidental stumbling onto a way that you can encourage somebody. This is describing the the deliberate, focused, considered, giving attention to how it is that I can show love to somebody. How is it that I can encourage another person? It's the deliberate, intentional giving of ourselves to this task. He's not simply saying, go to church and wait for an opportunity to sort of fall across your path. He is saying, before you go to church, to gather together with the assembly of people, give consideration as to how it is that you can stimulate others to love and to good deeds. This requires the application of your mind. How can I serve others by motivating them? Now I want you to notice how countercultural this is to how most people approach church in our day. You notice that? Most people in our day approach church as if the church is a service provider. 
what they think of when they think of going to church is, is the parking convenient? Are the facilities nice? Are the facilities new? Do I like the sound? Do I like the arrangement of the chairs? Does it have all of the the ministries and the functions? Is there something there for my toddler? Is there something there for my teenager? Is there something there for my great aunt? Does it have the, the services on the right night of the week? Does it have all the things that I might might pick and choose? Kind of like a buffet. Most people, when they are thinking of, of church and what a church means, they're thinking of a buffet. I want to go there, and I'm going to see what it is that I can pull out for me, what I like, and I'll take those things, and, th- and then I'll walk away having consumed a product. That's how most people approach church. Or they approach church as if it is simply a filler activity. If there's no sport on TV, on radio, on the Internet on a rerun, anywhere in our town that my kids are playing in or that I'm obligated to watch or that I'm any way interested in on at any time, or if the weather is, is disagreeable to me and kind of keeps me from doing all the things in my yard and my garden that I wanted to do, or if it's not springtime when I'm doing the work to prepare for summer, or not summertime when I'm out enjoying the only two months of the year that are pleasant in North Idaho, or if it's not fall time when I'm getting ready to do all my work for winter on the weekend, or if it's not in the winter time when I'm up enjoying the ski hill and being outside enjoying the snow and all that that brings, if it's not any of those seasons so that I have anything else to do, and there are no sports on TV, and nobody else to get together with, and none of my friends are doing anything else that might in any way draw or attract me away from church, then I can go to church. Church is treated like it's a filler activity. It's something that you do on a Sunday if you got nothing else that competes with it. I would suggest to you that everything else in life is a filler activity around the gathering of God's people. Those are the things that fill up the rest of our week. The church and the assembling of ourselves together, if this is not the highlight of your week, something is wrong. It's the highlight of my week. And not just because I get to be up here, Quite frankly, I'd rather not be up here most Sundays. I'd rather be sitting in the back row with one of you um, observing what goes on here. But church is the highlight for me, not because I'm up front and not because I, I know everybody here and everybody looks at me as the pastor. That's, that's not it at all. Church is the highlight of my week because everything I do, I look forward to being here with the assembling of God's people in worship and in fellowship and in being with my church family. So everything else is, everything else is filler. Everything around that, I work everything else around that so that this can be my priority. And I know it's easy to say, well, Jim, you just say that because you're paid to be here every Sunday. Well, I'm not paid to be here every Sunday. I'm paid to work all week long so that when I get here on Sunday, it doesn't look like I wasn't paid to be here on Sunday. <laughs> but this is the highlight of my week for that reason. It's not a filler activity. How many people who view church, how many people in America do you think woke up today and thought to themselves, my brothers and sisters in Christ, people who are bought by the same blood that I'm purchased by, that will share my inheritance for all of eternity, that worship the same Lord that I worship, they are gathering together in this location. I wonder how it is that I can go there and stimulate others to love and to good deeds. How many people do you think approach church that way? It's few. Now, I think that this this congregation, from what I have observed, has a higher percentage of those people than probably any other place that I've ever been around. But most people don't approach church that way. Most people approach church with an entirely different attitude. Rather than, let me give some thought and some consideration as to how it is that I can plan to motivate someone else to love and to good deeds. That word stimulate, it's the word paroxysmos, 
paroxysmos. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It's a very interesting word, and it's a pretty a, kind of a graphic word. Here it is used in a positive way. It's used one other time, but in a not-so-positive way. It's used in the book of Acts, chapter 15, by presumably a different author. I don't think Luke wrote Acts, but it's used by presumably a different author in a bit of a different context. In Acts, chapter 15, you may remember the story. After Paul and Barnabas had made their first missionary journey and gone up through the regions of uh, Turkey and Asia Minor, they came back down. They had the Jerusalem Council in Acts, chapter chapter 15, and then Paul had this idea, hey, Barnabas, let's, you and I go back and let's visit all the churches that we visited and we founded on our first missionary journey. And Barnabas said, I think that's a great idea, Paul. Let's do that. I'll, I'll give John Mark a call and see when he was free to leave. And Paul said, uh, what you talking about, Willis? John Mark? The same John Mark that left us on the first journey? I don't think so. And Acts 15.39 says, there occurred such a sharp disagreement. That's the word. Such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over this issue that they parted ways. Paul took Silas, Barnabas took John Mark, and they separated ways. And according to the New Testament, they never worked together again, Paul and Barnabas. There's no other indication that they ever crossed paths or came together in any kind of a joint enterprise after that. There occurred such a perixmos, a sharp disagreement. The word, the root word of that, was used to describe a sour wine, something with a biting and cutting edge, something that was sharp. And so you can kind of see how some of the different translators translate this word to bring out this agitated and provocative nature of this word. The NASB translates it, stimulate. That's a bit mild. It's a bit mild, stimulate. I, I think you could, I think the NASB could have done a little bit better than that. The King James translates it, provoke unto love and good works. Provoke. You ever been provoked? How do you feel when you're provoked? We use the word provocative to describe something that what? agitates us. Well, that was a bit provocative. It agitates us. It stirs us up. It gets us going on the inside. The New King James translates it stir up, and the NIV spur one another. And the NIV in that translation kind of catches the idea of that poking, that prodding, that sharp edge to something. We are to spur, to provoke, to agitate, to incite one another to love and good deeds. Now, that's kind of an interesting word to use in that context, is it not? Have you ever been incited to love and good deeds? Typically, we don't use words like that to describe that affection that we have, being stirred up in that way, being provoked in that way. What this is describing is a lively interest in the affairs of other people, but not in a busybody way. So if you have a busybody gene in you, this this is not your verse. This is not describing that. I was told to go walk around provoking people. Not, Not in that way. We are to have a lively interest in the affairs of other people, the spiritual affairs of other people to the end that we are agitating them, stirring them up in an aggressive and passionate way to love and to good deeds. It seems as if it is an awfully negative word to use to describe such a positive activity, isn't it? It just seems out of place. And I'll explain to you why I think the author used that word here in just a moment. But I want you to understand that he is not describing here any kind of negative behavior on behalf of the believers. As if you were to say to your spouse on the way home, look, I, I had a conversation with that Sunday school teacher, and I'll tell you what, I had it out with her, and, and I provoked her to love and good deeds. She'll be much better next week than she is this week because of what she did. It's, and he's not describing here the painful part of this. Like, I, I gave that deacon a tongue lashing, and he, he, I told him, you better get on it or get out of here. And so he's going to be a lot better in his duties as well. That's, that's not, it's nothing, it's not a negative activity. The, the word is describing the excited nature of this endeavor. 
It's not describing the negative connotations of it, but rather the the agitated and provocative nature of our interest in other people and of what our interest and our motivating of other people should do. People should respond to us considering how to stimulate one another. The response of people to us should be so provocative in a good sense that we think, wow, who lit a fire under them? And and if you trace it back to who it was and what it was that was the fire, you would say that was the best possible thing for them. Somebody really gave some thought as to how to be so invested in that person in a spiritual way, in a positive way, that the result is like this person just exploded, but not in anger, not in incitement, not in a provocation, but in joy and, and love and in good deeds. So it's not a negative thing that we're doing, even though it is a bit of a negative word. Now, I would let me tell you why it is that I think that the author would have chosen this word. And, and I, don't, I didn't come up with this myself. I, I kind of gleaned this from a couple of other commentators who suggested this. First, it's possible that some in the congregation to which this author was speaking or writing, that they had been provoked by those who were on the outside of the church, that they had been provoked by others on the outside of the church. Now remember, this is a group of people who had left all of their Hebrew and Judaism and the sacrifices and everything else the temple. And some of them were suffering soft persecution from their friends and their loved ones as a result of the commitment that they had made to Jesus Christ. That's why the author, look at it in verse 32, says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Now, how had some of those on the outside, their former acquaintances, friends and family members, employers and employees, how had they responded to their commitment to Christ? It was soft persecution. Some of them had their property seized. Some of them were, in the words of verse 32, enduring great conflict of sufferings. They were made public spectacles. They were reproached, had suffered tribulation, and become sharers with those who were so treated. There were those on the outside who were provoking those new Christians to leave the Christian assembly. And some of those inside the Christian assembly might have thought to themselves, you know, every time I get together for my, with my family for uh, Levi's birthday, this issue of my commitment to Christ always comes up, and it is always fraught with this conflict, this sharp disagreement. They think Jesus was a liar and deceiver. I think he was the Messiah, and I know of my salvation. But they don't get this, and so it's always an issue of conversation when our family gets together. Or in my neighborhood, when I'm out at the community uh, potluck in our neighborhood, the issue of my commitment to Christ comes up and why I haven't been attending the sacrifices at the temple and why I haven't been bringing a lamb on Passover and why I haven't been attending all of these other Judaistic activities that were part of my old life. It always comes up and there's always this conflict, this provocation. It has, this whole commitment to Christ has ended up provoking me and others are provoking me to leave the congregation. And the author here would be saying, it is our duty to provoke others to stay in the congregation, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but rather to be provoked to further our commitment to Christ and our adherence to Him. That's why I think the author is using the word provoking. They were used to being provoked by others who were trying to provoke them to leave. He's wanting those in the congregation to provoke those same people to stay and to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It's also true that some of us can be provoked by those on the inside. It's one thing to be provoked by those on the outside to say, no, your, your commitment to Christianity, it's ruined your old life. You're no longer one of us. You don't see things the same way. It's just co- constant state of conflict when we get together as a family. 
But it's another thing to be provoked by the person that's across the aisle from you, right? Sometimes we can provoke one another in a bad way within the congregation. And if there's any kind of strife within the body here, the author might be trying to address that fact, the fact that there was some provoking going on as people were rubbing against each other. This is what happens when sinners get together and live life together. This is what happens when sinners get together and worship and serve one another together. Sometimes there can be conflict and strife and we rub each other the wrong way. All that needs to happen for that to happen is for us to be us. That's it. You do you and I do me, and that's a recipe for disaster. And so when that happens and there is strife and conflict, it might provoke some people to just say, well, I'm not coming back. I don't need those people. I'll just stay home and worship. I can watch the live stream. I don't need to sit there next to those other sinners and and listen to that kid or listen to that person or listen to the old man who can't hear anything and say, what does he say? I don't have to put up with all of that stuff, all the irritants of gathering together as a people. I can just stay home. No, don't let anything provoke you to leave. Let one another provoke you to stay and to hold fast to draw near, to hold fast, and to encourage others to do the same. Those are the three exhortations. Why such a negative word to describe something so beautiful and positive? Because number one, I think it it describes the effect that we are to have upon people. Stirred up in such a passionate way, but not to leave, but to draw near and hold fast, and stirred up in such a passionate way that when you look at them, you think, man, they're just pursuing love and good deeds. Somebody must have provoked them to that. What a beautiful word, provoked. And we are to do this with the goal, the end in view of love and good deeds. Provoke one another to love and good deeds. Notice that both of these are categories of things, nothing specific. They're categories of things. They're things that we can love. There are things that create love within us. We can love God. We can love Christ. We can love the church, love others, love the truth, love the lost. A lot of things to love. Love has a number of expressions. Love can be created and and stirred up by a number of things. There are a number of different ways in which we love others and show our love for others. And so this is just a category of things where to, to be stirred up to love, it is somewhat specific, but it also kind of encompasses a whole bunch of other things. And notice that good deeds is a very, a very broad category, isn't it? What, what does he mean by that, good deeds? That could be serving others. That could be just remaining faithful. A good deed could just be obeying the simple commands of Scripture. Those are the good deeds. And notice that not only are these categories of things, but notice that there's a connection between love and good deeds. These two things do go together because love is the motivation that motivates all the good deeds that we do. It's not just that we are to be stirred up to do good deeds, but that we are to do so in a loving way. We are to consider, give thoughtful consideration to how it is that we can be an instrument in the hand of God to motivate somebody else to love and to do good deeds and how to best do that in a way that they are provoked to express the the faithfulness to Christ through good deeds and their love for Christ in serving others. And notice this. Notice the third thing here. There's a triad of virtues, and this kind of stood out to me, and I've been waiting weeks and weeks and weeks to point this out till we got to the end of it. Notice, you know what the Christian triad of virtues is? Love, faith, and hope. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that these things remain love, uh, love, faith, and hope. No, faith, hope, and love. Whatever the order is, it's those three. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13 Notice that all three of those are present in these three exhortations. Let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love. Faith, hope, and love. All three of those are present here in the text. You say, what do I do with that? What does that mean? I don't know. I think it's a great observation. These three things, faith, hope, and love, they are central aspects, central themes throughout all the New Testament. And they are certainly all present and all central to the body life of a, of a local church. 
There has to be faith by which we draw near to God. There has to be a hope to which we aspire and we confess. And there has to be love that is to mark and characterize our relationships and our interactions with one another. And they all come together here in this passage, these exhortations, as he is encouraging us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. Now, how do we do this? This is the point where I could say, okay, here are the ten things that you need to do this week in order to obey this command. But you'll notice that the passage is not specific in terms of its application, is it? We are to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Now, the idea of stimulating here has a parallel in verse 25, the encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Obviously, it has something to do with our assembling together. But the the writer does not give us a list of things that we are to do. I think specifically because the the application of this and the way in which this will work itself out will be in many ways gift-specific. Gift-specific. I'm talking about spiritual gifts. In other words, this is going to look a lot different when, when I do this as it does when somebody else does this. Somebody else's spiritual gift is going to cause them to look at the kids in their Sunday school class and write encouraging notes to each one of those kids or send them a gift or to remember people's birthdays. Another person's spiritual gift is going to cause them to, to go out and make sure that the doors are open and that the, the driveway is plowed and that the, the doors, uh, that they can help in somebody who is, uh, gets around with more difficulty or has a wheelchair. Somebody else's gift is going to be to make sure that the whole place is clean for the assembling of the saints. Somebody else's gift is going to be to, to run this service or to run that service and to stimulate one another. And this, this way in which we do this is gift specific. So it's going to look different for each and every individual. I'll tell you what this looks like for me. No, well, no. I won't finish that sentence. No, I will. Here we go. No, I'll finish the sentence. Here's here's what it looks like when, when I try and do this for other people. I give thought all week long to how I can study Scripture and be an encouragement to other people in my handling and treatment of Scripture. So, So I believe that my gift makes me stimulate, stir up other people to love and good deeds in the teaching of Scripture and in the communicating of that and in counseling and in sharing and sometimes meeting with people and helping people through different issues and answering questions. That's that's how I'm geared. I'm, I'm not the guy that writes... It, probably, I, I don't know if any of you, my wife, will get a note on your birthday. But there are people here who do that all the time. There, there's There's somebody here who, when somebody's going in for surgery, he knows about it. And before they started kicking people out of hospitals, he would go to the hospital and pray for the person who was having a surgery while they were going through that whole procedure. And no matter how many hours it was, 8, 9, 10, 12, whatever it was, he would stay there and he would be praying the whole time with the people who were waiting in the waiting room for that. You know what that does? That just stirs you up to love and good deeds, does it not? When you see the example of somebody else who does this, you see other people doing this, it motivates you to do it. And, and when you do it, it motivates other people to do it. And so in that way, we're all like a big agitator in the bottom of a, of a washing machine. We're all going around and around doing this one for another, stirring everything up and stirring other people up. You, you do it. When, when you do it, it stirs me up. When I do it, it stirs you up. When you each do it, it stirs other people up. They see it and they think, man, I got, that motivates me. I should be more like that individual in doing that. I should give my time and attention to that. That person is so considerate. I should be more like that. That person is so thoughtful. I, I could do the same thing if I just had the time. I, I should really do that. And in that way, we are motivated to use our spiritual gift, and the expression of this is going to look different depending on the giftedness and the unique capacities and time, skills, talents, and abilities that the Lord has given to each and every one of us. And it is to a mutual effect. And you notice that this is the work of the whole body, not just the pastor. Because I'll tell you right now, I cannot. I cannot. I do not have the, I do not have the mental, emotional, spiritual, physical capacity 
to, to do this to every single individual on a personal basis. I cannot do that. You cannot do that. Nobody here can do that. That's why this command is given to the entire body. Right? And when, when you're doing this for several other people in the congregation, several other people in the congregation are doing this for other people in the congregation, then everybody is involved in this, giving thought as to how they can motivate others to love and to good deeds, to use their spiritual gifts and the benefit of others, to help others along and to motivate them and encourage them to draw near to hold fast and to encourage others to do the same. This just creates a, this creates a dynamic body life in which all of us are doing this together, one for another, out of love. This is the good deed that we do out of love to motivate others to good deeds and to love. And it's a beautiful thing. And this requires, obviously, the gathering of ourselves together, does it not? There are people watching right now on live stream, but they have almost an, almost a complete inability to be here and to do that to you personally. You haven't, you, you are not really able to do this in the fullest extent to those who watch remotely. You just can't do it. This is something that can only be fulfilled in the physical, literal, regular gathering together of God's people. It's the only way this can be fulfilled in its fullest sense. You, you can send somebody an email and encourage them. Yeah, you can do this. But listen, the more separate you are from people, the more difficult this is to fulfill. That's just the nature of, of reality. It is in meeting together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It's in, in that meeting and in our gathering together. As I get to know you, you get to know me, we all get to know each other. We take an interest in one another. We, we learn, we hear from one another. We understand what the struggles are and the difficulties are. We understand what the needs are. This is something that is only fulfilled in its fullest sense when you are vitally connected to a local gathering of people known as the church. This is something that can only be done when you are involved in the lives of others and others are involved in your life. And the more distant you keep yourself, the more separate you become from this very good grace of other people stirring you up to love and good deeds. And the further away you keep yourself from other Christian people, the more alienated you become, the less able you become to do this in the lives of others, and the less able they are to do this in your life. So our willingness or our our wanting at times to keep our distance from other people and to stay out of accountability circles and to stay out of other people's lives and to keep other people's out of our lives, you cut yourself off from this very grace. This is the grace of God in your life. The church, the gathering of the saints locally by which all of this is fulfilled, us meeting together and encouraging one another, this is God's gift to you. Millions of Christians today are not enjoying what you get to enjoy here. You know how graced we are? You know how blessed we are to enjoy this? To have this? This is almost, for millions and millions of Christians across the ages, what we get to enjoy here on a Sunday morning is is so rare to them that they don't get to have any of this. And to think that in our culture, we just want to keep everybody at a distance. No, no. I'll attend once in a while. We'll keep those people... I don't get to know any of those people. I mean, I know the people in front of me and behind me, but those people in the other section, against the wall, I mean, they are, they're, that's the loony left for a reason. They're over there. I don't want to, I mean, look at the people. This Right? You cut yourself off from the grace of God. This is His gift to us. And we have to embrace this. So let us give considered, deliberate, focused intention as to how it is that we can provoke other people in the best way possible, with the result being that we will be encouraging in them love and good deeds, obedience to the commands of Christ. Do you see how this keeps apostasy at bay? 
When, when we do this for one another and we see other people who are heading in a certain direction and we stop them and we grab them and say, hey, no, that's not the right way to go. That's not what you should be doing. Look, and l- listen, I want to encourage you to do this. Or when we find some way to be an encouragement to them, some way to bless them, some way to serve them, some way to encourage them, provoke them to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Provoke them to love and good deeds. Provoke them to obedience to Scripture. That becomes a, a guard against apostasy. It becomes a guard against us leaving the faith and walking away from the truth. This is something that all believers need. No matter how old you are, no matter how mature you are, it's something that all believers need because spiritual sloth is a real danger. We get apathetic and we get apathetic easy. Especially when we live in a country that, at a time, not just a country, but at a time when all of our needs are met and we become just, we, we almost are awash in prosperity and ease of life. We have it easier than anybody else has ever had it. That slothfulness, spiritually speaking, can creep in and can strangle your soul. Spiritual deception is a real danger. At a time when it's so easy, it's very easy in in getting slothful to, to let down the guard and to open ourselves up to being spiritually deceived by false teachers, by well meaning people who would lead us astray. Spiritual deception is a real danger. And the slothfulness and becoming spiritually weak. And we don't want to do any of that. What is it that keeps sloth, a deception, becoming spiritual weak at bay? What is the remedy for that? Give careful, considerate attention, thoughtfulness as to how you can be provocative to others in the best way possible. With the end, not to be an irritant to them, not to be a busybody, but to encourage them to love and good deeds. And if we all do that, that helps guard all of us against being deceived against falling away, against apostasy, against being weak, and against slothfulness. Now, what do we do with this command in verse 25? This is the explanation. We are to do this not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. And what is, at the end of verse 25, this day that is drawing near? What is that day? And how is that to motivate us to do this even more? You see, there's something coming that when we look at that, we should say, oh, I better get busy doing this because something is on the horizon. And when that hits, my time to do that will be over. What is that day? We'll look at that next week. We'll look at the explanation of this in verse 25 next week. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.